Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in this week to the podcast. Connor Boyack is an incredible man. He's been on the show before. We will definitely link to the previous episodes. But today we're talking about a very controversial topic. We're breaking it into two parts. The first part is going to get into the wealth gap that is significant. Wealth inequality is a theme that's being used by both sides of the political aisle to create divisiveness and Right now, there's a lot of upset people. This episode, without the proper context, may upset you. So go back and listen to the last, I would say, four to five episodes. Hopefully, that'll prepare you to think rationally about this very sensitive topic. So you know, the drive we have to make a difference, grow, and be free is evident across most human behavior. And achieving that result is what I characterize and what I've tried to talk to you guys about as true wealth. You know, the podcast's mission is to help you identify sound principles that will guide you to achieve wealth and prosperity regardless of the environment or economic circumstances. Right now, it may not seem possible, but understanding the principles will allow you to understand that it's not the environment that creates that end. It's principles and acting on those principles. So through this lens, these emotionally sensitive topics will inspire you instead of infuriate you, which is unfortunately the way in which people are looking at this this topic. So my compadre, Connor Boyack, has really dedicated his professional life and arguably because of some threatening experiences that he's had his whole life to defending the principles of prosperity by being very involved in the political arena here in Utah, but also by expanding that into the world of literature and education with over 21 books, most of them through the children's book uh, platform. And for those of you who have listened to Connor before, the Tuttle Twins books are, I get comments about that more than any anything else that's come from the podcast. And Connor's going to give you guys the second part of the interview, a, a code to get these books. And, uh, and I'm offering something for the rest of 2020. So we're going to put all this information on the show notes. So go to thewellstandard.com and you can pull up this episode and it'll be there. But for those of you who purchase the package uh, and, and Connor's going to give an insane discount for all of the books or 
the online curriculum that he has. I'm going to match that. What I mean by that is if you purchase, I'm going to give you, I'm going to basically pay for another either package of books or the online course that you can give to somebody else. And I'm going to do that through the end of 2020. So go to thewellstandard.com and look up this episode for those for those details. Guys, hope you gain a lot from this. Hope you're able to step back and really think through some of the points that we make and that it enlightens you to understand the narrative, but also understand how to have a productive, meaningful conversation with somebody else about this, uh, about this topic. But I hope it inspires you to really understand how the world has improved because of the environment that we have in which people can start businesses. They can be free to fail, free to succeed, and how that improves everybody's life. So let's cut to the uh, the interview. Without further ado, this is Connor Boyack. Connor Boyack is uh, the president of Libertas Institute, and uh, which is a nonprofit think tank here in Utah. But it's also an educational organization. They, they promote through a lot of influence up on Capitol Hill during legislative sessions. They promote the principles of liberty, but they also educate the public in so many different ways, which we'll discuss on the show. Connor is also the author of 21 books. And for those of you listening in the future, it could be 50 by the time you're listening to this, which, you know, a couple months, give or take. But it also includes a children's series, which is incredible, called uh, The Tuttle Twins. And uh, so, Connor, welcome to the show. You're obviously no stranger here, except for those that are, that are new and, and new listeners. Thanks for coming back. Really appreciate your time. Uh, happy to be here. I'm excited to get into the issues with you. All right. So this is a, this is a hot one, right? Because it is, it's something that's been you know, politicized, it's being weaponized by different political parties, but it's the wealth gap, right? So I'm going to read some statistics, which I haven't given you in advance, but I'm sure you won't be surprised. So this is given the Federal Reserve's stats, whether they're objective or not, you know, but I would say it's close to as objective as possible. But in the United States, there's $104 trillion of private wealth in terms of money. The top 1%, $32 trillion. The next 9%, $39.1 trillion. The next 40%, $31 trillion, and the bottom 50%, $1.5 trillion. So clearly, there is a gap, and the gap is, is shown to, to widen. So, Connor, you know, I, I think we are able to have a, a conversation that understands both perspectives. How, when you hear these numbers, when you, you hear the narrative that's used and, and how it's, like I said, weaponized and politicized, like what, what goes through your mind? Like, how do you process that? So I'm excited by those numbers where other people uh, find them repugnant and see an inequality that needs to be addressed. I, I'm, I'm kind of conversely excited and that's for a very important reason. What would those numbers have been like a century ago? What would those numbers have been like three centuries ago? right? The fact that so much wealth has been created has made it so that we all live like kings. Even that bottom, you know, 50%, the bottom 10, even the bottom 2% live like kings compared to people just a century ago. I mean, the creature comforts that we enjoy, that this wealth inequality has allowed for wealthy people to amass capital, to invest in research and development and come up with new innovative conveniences. The fact that Jeff Bezos is now going to be delivering our products by drone on the same day we order them. I mean, we, what, like, packing the mule over the mountain, you know, with a couple of workers that takes a three-week journey to get to you. And by then, like half of what you ordered has been stolen or, you know, moldy or like the fact that some people have gotten rich should not distract us from the fact that everyone has gotten rich, right? Wealth is not the natural condition in life. Poverty 
is the natural condition in life. And the fact that some people have become more wealthy than others doesn't discount the fact that basically everyone has become more wealthy. Everyone has a higher standard of living. And it's this system for all of its warts and bumps and everything else. It's not perfect, but it's this system compared to any other that has allowed for that massive creation of wealth and prosperity across all the demographics that you can imagine. I knew, I mean, I could have guessed that you were going to say something along those lines, even though we haven't really even talked about this in, you know, in detail previous to the interview. You know, and I, I have some statistics here that, that I usually will find from an opinion and perspective, researched opinion and perspective. It's not, it doesn't make the news headlines that often, uh, but one of them is Matt Ridley. He's written a bunch of books. The one that hit me the hardest, you know, probably 10 years ago was uh, The Rational Optimist. It was when everything was falling down and he wrote this book that said that world is amazing. So, but you know, here's some of the things that he cited in a recent blog post. He said, extreme poverty has fallen below 10% of the world's population for the first time. It was 60% when he was born, which was in the late 1940s. Child mortality has fallen to record low levels. Famine virtually went extinct. Uh, Malaria, polio, and heart disease are all in the decline. One of the least fashionable predictions that he made was the ecological footprint. Right, we have been able to be more, you know, use more sustainable resources and be more efficient with the way in which we are attentive to, you know, those initiatives. And you know, you can keep going as far as the use of land and the use of water when it comes to producing food. It has dropped hundreds of percent. You know, the and I can keep going on and on and on. You know, yeah. as far as how how people are coming out of extreme extreme poverty. Peter Diamandis, right? He is more on the more the technological front. And, you know, he he's talked about the the fact that four billion we're we're approaching four billion people with smartphones right. where people are getting connected, they're getting access to to information, education and, and so forth. So you know, I agree with you. There's a disease more of a disease of abundance, right, than there is of of scarcity, right? When it comes to living the way that we live today versus what life would have been like 100 years ago. Uh, I was just going to add to your list before with the proliferation of, of mobile phones and so forth, you know, access to banking or cryptocurrency, sending money around, transmitting to family members in other countries. I mean, just the fact that Africa didn't really get into landlines and telephone poles and all the rest, they leapfrogged over that and basically now have like, what, 95% plus penetration of cell phones, even out in these remote villages where they can access, you know, Wikipedia and suddenly like any villager can can learn from all of the knowledge in the world. I was a missionary in Honduras about, a, wow, almost two decades ago. And I lived in these tiny little pueblos for like two years. And I remember once a week, we would get an opportunity to go you know, email the family and say, hey, I'm still alive out here. <laughs> And, you know, we we do that at these internet cafes that were crazy expensive. They were very rare. The internet was horrible. And now, same thing as you just pointed out, everyone's got cell phones, constant connectivity, connecting all the world, creating amazing remote work opportunities where people out in these villages can go on, like, say, Upwork.com and say, hey, I can do graphic design. I can do editing. I can do translation. I can do whatever. And create all these economic opportunities that they didn't have before. Look, I, I care a lot about issues surrounding charity and poverty. I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of greedy capitalist that, you know, my wife and I, we, we try and focus very much on trying to lift those who are in need and find ways to serve. But I know of no other economic system that does it better than, you know, what's often called 
capitalism because you have the incentive for these people to go and produce. And yes, what does that mean? That means the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and others are going to amass substantial wealth, but they're not extracting it from anyone. It's not a zero-sum game. They're not forcibly taking it from people. All that means is they've figured out a way to serve a crap ton of people because capitalism and entrepreneurship and business, it's really just service. It's how can I, you know, I hate pulling weeds. And so the fact that someone will come serve me by pulling my weeds and we have an economic exchange so I can make it worth their while, that is still service to me because I would rather part with, you know, 10 bucks, 20, 50, whatever, than do the weeds. And, you know, having an electric car, having drone deliveries or whatever the issue is, these people have figured out a way to serve a ton of people rather than a few people. In my mind, that is a system that should be praised. Notwithstanding that, I do think it's important that we still look at the inequality issues and figure out, you know, even better ways to help people move up that economic ladder. But it doesn't come from the kind of traditional, you remember the lobsters in the bucket story, right? Like where you put lobsters in a bucket and as one tries to get out, the other oh, cra- pull or, yeah, out. crabs or crabs. lobsters. Yeah. 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 And so they'll, you know, they'll try and pull it down. Pull each other so down. And get up. And, and so that's not how the system works. We can figure out a way to build up more people. We don't have to tear down the one percent and take more of their money and remove their incentives to actually serve even more people we can do it in a way that just empowers even more people and removes those roadblocks of regulations for micro like even people who want to start like a food truck they got to deal with a nightmare of regulations just to like get their foot in the door in entrepreneurship to maybe do a food truck to then do three to then do a brick and mortar restaurant and grow an empire and franchise but if we're if we have these regulations and other problems in the way that prevent the people on the bottom like if you've got money, you can make problems go away and you can be strategic and figure out a way around them. It's the people on the bottom who don't have those resources that they can't navigate the system, that they're often trapped by the system that purports to help them, puts them on the dole, says, here's some money, go sit on a couch and Netflix and chill while we subsidize your inactivity. But what if instead we remove those roadblocks that they don't have the capital and the network to circumvent on their own so that they can bootstrap themselves up and be able to go to work and you know, there's so many stories of rags to riches that you can't say that like everyone who's wealthy is wealth gets wealthier and everyone who's poor just stays poor. Like that's just not reality at all. But I do think there are improvements we can make to help more of those rags become riches and give even more people that opportunity. Taking a break from the show, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango. Thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. So now let's cross lines. Because just as much as we ourselves have rationalized this, not together, but in in probably similar ways, the overwhelming majority does not believe this way. So let's, let's look at their perspective. How do you sympathize with them? How do you understand why they've come to a conclusion they have, which could be the diametric opposite of, of ours? And how is that being politicized? 
you may have seen uh, Pat the the video of a Black Lives Matter kind of leader, I guess you can say, protesting outside a courthouse. This was a few weeks ago at the time of our recording, saying to the camera, to the public, it is okay that we go loot these businesses, that we do these riots, that we bash in these store windows, that we take all these you know, apparel and toys and electronics and everything we're taking because they have insurance, <laughs> right? And there have been other Black Lives Matter protesters who I watched a video of one woman defending the pillaging of white store owners as a form of representation operations because it's in her words it was you know the black community that has built that business and never been able to take advantage of the profits you know the the downside there is, first of all, that's not really how insurance works or why it exists. I think, you know, the first comment really reflects an economic misunderstanding. She's just trying to justify theft. But the second comment was more interesting to me with this notion of reparations and this longstanding injustice that, look, certain people have just been kept down. They've been denied these opportunities. To that, I say, I don't disagree. I mean, there've been a lot of these problems. You think of zoning laws, for example, zoning laws were instituted because of racism. It was a way to segregate neighborhoods and keep black people out of white neighborhoods. And you still have those problems to this day where zoning boards and city councils and others will perhaps not overtly or explicitly, but they can hide their bias and use zoning laws to kind of keep certain people down and prevent them from having, you know, commercial activity in their neighborhoods or, you know, from integrating into other parts of the city or whatever. Because it was illegal. And they could have been fined. They could have been put in jail if they crossed those lines. Yeah. And so so there are certainly these policies that have been in place over time that have been put in place. But the tough thing I have with reparations is that you don't really have an opportunity to connect one-to-one. By that, I mean that, yeah, maybe someone did something horrible 80 years ago or 20 years ago or 150 years ago, but, but how does that justify perpetuating the injustice by forcing someone else whose fault it is not to pay for the misdeeds of what someone else did? I sympathize. I want to help. You know, I want to remove those roadblocks. I want to help everyone be able to flourish and, and have that opportunity. I just struggle with what some of the demands are where people look at that inequality and they have this kind of aggregate perception that there's this like systemic problem. Therefore, we're going to have a systemic solution, an aggregate solution that just like uses a sledgehammer and says, we're going to do this so that we benefit. But in a way, that's, that's continuing the very injustice that they're talking about by perpetrating it on more people who are innocent of the misdeeds that they're rightly pointing out in the past. And so it just becomes kind of a sloppy way. Like I sympathize with the problem. The solution is where it breaks down. And so that, that's where I think it's like, look, if we can sit down and talk together and resolve this, you know, maybe we come up with some interesting ideas. But I feel like a lot of the people who speak out against inequality and who are especially vocal about it, especially in the past few months with Black Lives Matter and, and some of these groups, there's a bit of an economic ignorance there and perhaps a, a political collectivism where they're trying to force these solutions on other people and thereby become the perpetrators of the injustice they're speaking out against. Well, you you have this this balance between very strong, deep-seated emotions, right, that go back generations and it goes back culturally. And when you, you know, that's where when we start out talking logically about the wealth gap, you know, it's, it's provable. At the same time, people aren't going to sit back and say, you know, you're right. I should think about things differently. You know, people have these deep-seated emotions that reinforce a perspective that, you know, for for me is, you know, I try to sympathize and empathize with that. And, you know, I look at just some of the extreme things that, that human beings to this day still do to one another, do to children, do to women, do to minorities. It's, it's sickening. But at the same time, you look at history and it's always happened that way. And so I, I look at 
what do we do now with a, you know, quote unquote, civilized society that we supposedly live in so that the political sphere is not injecting these, I would say, cheap and slighted and shallow emotions into the narrative to gain political capital. Like, what do you, what do you do? How do you reconcile all of this? Like, what is the what's what's the solution? Because you have these deep seated things that are just not going to go away, and then you have these obviously rational things, right? That we can show. Wow, the rich people, wealthy people, have created so much as it relates to our lifestyle. We use the same internet browser as Jeff Bezos. We have the same you know iPhone as as Bill Gates, right? They're not living much of a different lifestyle other than maybe the car they drive and where they go on vacation. It's not much different. So how do you reconcile this, Connor? Like you're, you're obviously amazing at taking very divisive topics when it comes to liberty and teaching people through books, through education, but also promoting principles on Capitol Hill and being very influential to lawmakers who clearly have one perspective and they lean toward a party. How do you reconcile all this? This one is tough because as I've over the, the past several months during the shutdown and everything, I've been talking to folks about these issues. I feel like among people who are more free market minded, conservative, libertarian, Republican, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of unease. There's a lot of unease in the sense that people have long felt, you know, on this foundation of society and their principles and whatever, but the degree to which these riots have happened and killings and lootings and all these kinds of things, the way society and culture has been changing as a result of all these events. A lot of these people I've talked to have felt very uneasy, like those footings, the foundation of society are shifting underneath them. And they feel that there's this instability where they don't know how to act. They don't know how to step forward. If, if the ground is kind of loose, how do I know that that's a sure footing so that I can you know, move forward with my there's life, risk. My business, you know, a law, whatever. There's absolutely risk. And the market doesn't like uncertainty, right? We need to have some kind of predictability. And so this is a tough question for me because how do you forecast things? How do you offer a solution and try and figure figure out what that approach is. What I've seen a lot of families do is really think about turning inward and saying, look, I, I can't, you know, it's like a, the story of like a tree, right? When there's a drought or something to conserve resources, you know, the tree is not going to grow that year. You look at the rings of the tree and when they're, you know, very tight like that, that's during a, a year where it didn't have growth. It was just in survival mode. And it feels like a lot of families are in that mode right now where they're trying to say, how do I talk to my kids about these issues? What do I think about these issues? What voices do I trust? And I've seen a lot of these people shift from, you know, engaging online or community activism or going up to the Capitol or, or trying to kind of change the world to just saying, I got to protect my family. I got to figure out, you know, what we're going to do, what, how we make sense of this, not only economically, like how's our job doing and, and so forth, but also just like if society can shift this much where we've got shutdowns, we've got mandates, we've got Karens, quote unquote, who are, we have this culture now of like shaming one another for, you know, you're insufficiently compliant, so I'm going to call the cops on you. Like, we haven't really had that before in our society. You know, we have riots, we have lootings, we have all these blue states and, and Democrat mayors just letting these people run amok, you know, destroying businesses and government buildings. And, you know, we've seen that in Eastern Europe. We've seen that in some parts of Asia and Africa and elsewhere. We've never really seen that in America. And that shift is disconcerting to a lot of people. So I even feel this way partially myself, where I struggle to figure out, okay, is there anything I should be doing or can be doing right now that I'm not? Or should I be kind of just trying to like maintain my balance so that when the ground solidifies a bit more, then I'm ready to move forward. But things seem to be changing so quickly for a lot of people. I think it's very rational to be like, eh, I need to just kind of like wait this out and see where things land. So we've shifted a lot of, I've shifted personally, a lot of my energy 
into, you mentioned like our children's books and really helping families get, you know, material to have these deep conversations and talk about these ideas, because it seems like that's where an investment right now is going to yield a lot of dividends in the future, as opposed to on the policy side of things, trying to like figure out where to step when the ground is shifting. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed part one of this two-part interview. Definitely come back for part two. This is where we get into education. We get into inspiring and influencing and uh, and helping kids really understand the environment and how to essentially change their life with just some simple, simple tweaks. Connor has made some amazing resources available. And as I mentioned, I'm going to match through the end of 2020, any purchase you make with his steep discount, I'm going to match that, allowing you guys to give that as a gift to somebody else. So go check out all of those details on thewellstandard.com in this episode's show notes. Thanks again, guys, and don't forget to tune in to next week's episode. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,